We are in this process, just started a new sermon series entitled Salt and Light, and the general idea of this is taken from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that you are the, you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world. And these concepts of salt and light have to do with how the salt and the light impact the people around us. Uh, there's different elements of salt, different concepts of light that impact uh, whatever they touch, whatever the light falls on, but we then are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And Jesus even went so far as to say, hey, when you have a light, you don't put it under, or a lamp, you don't put it under a bushel, and the bushel that he's describing is a relatively large type of basket. You don't put it under that. You don't hide it, but then you allow it to be seen. You allow your love not to just be inward. I mean, loving yourself, really? No, but to love others. Now, I, I want to make sure that we understand this concept because Jesus says the impact of your light, that is your good works, will be seen by people and their response, hopefully, prayerfully, eventually, is that they will praise our Father in heaven. But I don't want us to confuse this with what Jesus discusses in Matthew chapter 6, just one chapter later, in which he says the Pharisees, when they fast, they broadcast it. They wear sackcloth and ashes so that everybody knows that when they give, they would take their little trinkets and they would toss them into the temple coffer and trumpets would blow. Don't do that kind of stuff. Don't let your religiosity, don't bring a fanfare to all of this, these good works. But when you love, don't hide your love. But make your love, make your acts, make be salt and light outwards and not just inwards. This is so crucial. So our, the, the controlling question that we want to ask over the next many weeks is how can we be salt and light? How can we impact the people around us powerfully and effectively? Before we get into the topic today, I, want to, we, I just want to ask three very brief questions and answer them very briefly. Number one, why would we do this? We want to do this not so that we feel, now listen to me, not so that you feel fulfilled. I, I know there's a lot out there, even in the Christian community, that we, you tap into what you're good at and your talents, and when you actually operate in your talents, you feel fulfilled. Can I say that's, that's wonderful that we may ful be fulfilled or feel fulfilled at times, but that is not our goal. We don't serve others so that we feel good about ourselves. The second thing is we want to make sure that we are not just serving in areas that we personally feel gifted in, where our talents lies and so on. That by vacuuming carpets, that's kind of below us. So I want to find something that I'm good at and I'm skilled at and God has really called me to. We, we, we generally use this word called rather uh, flippantly in the Christian community. Well, I'm just not called to that. Well, you know what Jesus said? Serve one another. And sometimes vacuuming the church carpet is an amazing way to serve, including cleaning the toilets. Amen? 
Amen. Not too many amens on that one, including cleaning the toilets. Amen, church? There we go. Woohoo! Looking forward to it. Actually, Peter and I, where's Peter, Peter back here? Uh, and Hillel, Hillel's up here. The three of us, we are tag teaming and we are cleaning the church, including the toilets this coming Saturday. And I thank you to each of you who are on that rotating schedule to help clean the church. That is a blessing. Thank you so much. But you know what? We don't do, we don't just serve in areas that we feel called. We serve and we seek to impact people however God opens the door, okay? And then lastly, I think a lot is made on how we do this. There is the parable of the talents, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the word for talents that was used in that parable, we borrowed in our English language, the word talents, and consequently, that is where we actually get our English word talents, from that parable. But talents are not what make us who we are. Uh, God wants to use us in our talents, yes, but the, the, the concept of talents in that parable is actually more than just what we call talents. Sometimes the things that God gives us from birth, we call them innate abilities. They can include talents. They, they're going to include your IQ, all right? I, I tell you what, when me being a proud young man, it was a challenge to start dating my wife because she quickly began to demonstrate that she probably had a higher IQ than me. And that was challenging. She could read about three times faster. She seemed to just get things quicker. And she was a smart young lady. But you know what? Our IQ is one of those innate abilities, um, even our personality. And sometimes when we're talking about this topic of how we impact people, we can tend to favor and even envy extrovert. How many of you this morning would call yourself an extrovert? Raise your hand. You're an extrovert. Okay, extroverts. All right. Generally, an extrovert is outgoing. When they're with people, it energizes them. Introverts, people don't necessarily energize you. My wife is an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Okay. That, that, not, that doesn't mean that you people just sap the life out of me. I'm not saying that, okay? <laughs> However, I really like my downtime and my personal time. It, that energizes me. And then when I go out and I serve, that takes energy for me. But for an extrovert, wow, that, spending time with you, that energizes them. Wow. Now, I don't know if Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't really matter. It's just in our culture, so much so much has been spoken on this topic of being an extrovert and an introvert, many times being a high-impact person, uh, uh, being evangelistic, sharing our faith. And when we're all called to this church, we can tend to even envy the extroverts. And I've fallen into that category. I've envied my wife. I've envied people who are just, wow, they just seem to connect with people so fast. But here's an intriguing little thing. It is a little harder for my wife than myself to meet new people. When it comes to like door to door, that's like, that's, that's really hard for her. That is so easy for me. I love doing that. But I'm an extrovert. So I just want us to be careful that we don't just rely on these innate abilities that we can have, even some skills like in public speaking or in writing. I'm going to tell you this. I'm not saying that God doesn't want to use those things, but here is what gives God even more glory that we're going to choose to 
to focus on over the next several weeks. That if we're going to use our talents to impact people, here's what God's going to do. And I'm going to promise you this. He will do it many times in your life. He will bring you to that point where your talent just is not enough. And to impact your neighbor, to impact your family member, there's just, there's just more. I, I don't know how to describe it other than that word. It's going to be more that you're going to need. And that more is the grace of God that he wants to work through you. And we're going to find there's a difference between spiritual gifts or spirit-empowered abilities and your natural abilities. And you may have a natural ability to teach, but if you don't have a spirit-empowered ability to teach, you're going to find there's a huge difference. And much of that difference has to deal with how what you do impacts people, not how it impresses them. You can be a funny, amazing teacher, and you can there's truth. But when a person is spiritually empowered, then what is taught tends to impact people's heart. Musicians, you can have a an ability to play the trumpet, play the piano, play various instruments. But when the spirit comes on you, there is a different quality about it, a different nature about it that impacts people. I can remember the first time that I, I experienced this to this degree was when I was listening to someone. We were way up in Virginia Beach. This is while I was getting my master's degree. And there was someone, and he started playing the trumpet. And I cannot describe it to you. He, he was a good trumpet player, but I began to weep when he played. And he had done this many times. When he played the trumpet, it just would impact you. I don't know how to describe it. I truly don't. You know, There are many times when Marla is playing the piano, and it's like the Spirit of God comes upon her. Uh, Ohaliab and Bezalel were two people in the Old Testament who were instructed to oversee the craftsmanship of the tabernacle. And it says that they were filled with the Spirit to do that as craftsmen. I would venture to say that, yes, they probably had this innate ability to use their hands to bring something, uh, to, 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 to bring it to life, so to speak. But when the Spirit of God came upon them, the impact, the, uh, the, what they did was even greater. And, and this is what we're going to seek. So I'm going to make a choice. I am not going to focus on the innate abilities, your intellect, um, certain skills that God has just given you even from birth that you're developing. Those are important, but I'm going to choose to focus on other things. Things like love, things like Holy Spirit empowering, things like wisdom, teamwork, this ability to work with, I want us to look at this and how when we come to, to God and say, God, how can you use me today? I'm not saying God's not going to use you in your innate abilities, intellects, talents, and so on. But I want us to say, okay, God, how can I be filled more with your spirit? How can I be filled, filled with your compassion and love? How can I work with people in a way that, that like with your spouse, that magnifies these types of things, that your spirit works together and the product is even greater than if I did it by myself. Now, do you follow what I'm saying here? The one that I want to focus on today is this idea of love and compassion. Let's understand that when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, without love, I am nothing. 
Without love, I gain nothing. Regardless of the spiritual gifts that I have, regardless of the intellect or however much I want to impact people, without love, it's for nothing. Jesus, uh, Paul says, now I will show you. The very end of chapter 12, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, now I want to show you the most excellent way. And he concludes, yes, desire spiritual gifts, but desire that you would be so filled and controlled by love that that will super empower what you do now, okay? So we're going to talk about things like that. So this morning, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about compassion. The best way that I can figure that we can do this is by looking at the life of Jesus. And I want us to just look at five different quick snapshots, quick snapshots, of Jesus and how he impacted people. And for many of us, if we were in Jesus's shoes, like myself, I may not have handled it the way Jesus did, but the way he handled it was beautiful. But before I do that, before we look at Jesus' life, I want to, sh I want to read to you, it's called Bob's Last Letter. Please understand this is completely tongue-in-cheek. If you don't laugh, it will hurt my feelings. I mean, I didn't write it, but it's just a cute little story of the exact opposite of what I'm preaching on this morning, okay? So I want to read that to you right now. Bob's last letter. Dear friends, it is important for men to remember that as women grow older, it becomes harder for them to maintain the same quality of housekeeping as they did when they were younger. When men notice this, they should try not to yell. Let me relate how I handled the situation. When I got laid off from my consulting job and took early retirement in April, it became necessary for Nancy to get a full-time job, both for extra income and for health benefits that we need. It was shortly after she started working that I noticed that she was beginning to show her age. I usually get home after fishing and hunting. About the same time, she got home from work. Although she knows how hungry I am, she almost always says that she has to rest for half an hour or so before she starts supper. I try not to yell. <laughs> Instead, I tell her to take her time and just wake me when she finally gets supper on the table. She used to do the dishes as soon as we finished eating. It is now not unusual for them to sit on the table for several hours after supper. I do what I can by reminding her several times each evening that they aren't cleaning themselves. I know she appreciates this, as it does seem to help her get them done before she goes to bed. Now that she is older, you know this is tongue-in-cheek, please understand. I am not endorsing this now that she is older, she seems to get tired so much more quickly. Our washer and dryer are in the basement. Sometimes she says she just can't take another trip down those steps. I don't make a big issue of this. As long as she finishes up the laundry by the next evening, I am willing to overlook it. Not only that, but unless I need something ironed to wear to the Monday Lodge meeting or to Wednesdays or Sunday's poker club or to Tuesdays or Thursday's bowling or something like that, I will tell her to wait until the next evening to do the ironing. This gives her a little more time to do some of those odds and ends things like shampooing the dog, vacuuming, and dusting. Also, if I had a really good day fishing, this allows her to gut and scale. 
gut and scale the fish at a more leisurely pace. Nancy is starting to complain a little occasionally. For example, she will say that it's difficult for her to find time to pay the monthly bills during her lunch hour. In spite of her complaining, I continue to try to offer encouragement. I tell her to you know, stretch it out over two or even three days. That way, she won't have to rush so much. I also remind her that missing lunch completely now and then wouldn't hurt her any, if you know what I mean. When doing simple jobs, she seems to think she needs more rest periods. She had to take a break when she was only half finished mowing the, mowing the yard. I try not to embarrass her when she needs these little extra rest breaks. I tell her to fix herself a nice big cold glass of freshly squeezed lemonade and just sit for a while. I tell her that, you know, as long as you're making yourself one, she may as well make one for me, and take her break by the hammock so she can talk with me until I fall asleep. <laughs> I know that I probably look like a saint in the way I support Nancy on a daily basis. I'm not saying that the ability to show this much consideration is easy. Many men will find it difficult. Some will find it impossible. No one knows better than I do how frustrating women can become as they get older. However, guys, even if you just yell at your wife a little less often because of this article, I will consider that writing it was worthwhile. Signed, Bob. P.S. P.S. Bob's funeral was on Saturday, January 25th. P.P.S. Nancy was acquitted Monday, January 27th. <laughs> oh, goodness. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Excuse me, Mark chapter 5. I'm so glad you understand me. <laughs> oh, goodness. Am I going to be getting any texts or emails after the sermon today? <laughs> How could you? Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Yeah, guys, great example of definitely what not to do. In Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus as he has crossed a, the, the Sea of Galilee. He arrives, <coughs> excuse me, he arrives on shore to a big crowd. How does Jesus respond to a need that immediately surfaces? In verse 21, it says this, Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. Now, they call it a lake. It is more salty than a lake, but it is less salty than the Mediterranean Ocean. Okay, It is called the Sea of Galilee or sometimes the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, on occasion, it is called a lake. Anyway, it says that a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. 
Here is a man by the name of Jairus or Jairus. Jairus is obviously married, has a daughter. She is 12 years old. She's fallen sick. Now understand that as a synagogue ruler, it would be very difficult to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to come to your home, lay hands on your daughter that she would be healed. There is an element of trust here. Jesus' reputation apparently has spread widely and Jairus has heard of it, and he is thinking, my goodness, at least by John 9, I don't know where John 9 chronologically fits with this story, but we do know, according to John 9, at some point in Jesus' ministry, that if you did something like Jairus did, you would actually be kicked out of the synagogue. But here's a guy, Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler. That was an important position. He was like the head pastor, if you will, very orthodox, no doubt, and he is taking a huge risk in light of the need of his daughter to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to see him. Now, for Jesus, he has just gone across a lake, come back, and now he is accosted by this huge crowd. A little bit later, we read the crowd is pressing in him while he's going following Jairus. While he is doing that, a lady reach, kind of breaks through the crowd, reaches in, and touches the hem of his garment. You remember that story. That is how crowded it was. That's how many people were around him. Now, I don't know Jesus' intention. He is seeking to minister, but we don't know what his intention was as soon as he landed. There is a huge crowd. They all want to listen to him. No doubt, they're also wanting him to heal them. But here is a man, and he is desperate. And Jesus has to weigh his options. Do I minister to the crowd? And, and one of them had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she was healed. I'm sure there were others. Jesus didn't just come to heal, he came to preach the truth about the kingdom and who he was as the king of that kingdom. And so that is important, but as he weighs his options, weighs his opportunities, he listens to Jairus' plea, and he has compassion. His heart goes out to Jairus, because Jairus isn't just a, a, a normal guy. He realizes as a synagogue ruler this is a big deal for him to come to Jesus. He's pleading that his daughter be healed because she's about to die. Now, we understand it. if you've read the story, she eventually does die. And the people come to Jairus and say, you know, don't trouble Jesus anymore. Your daughter has already died. And you can just imagine Jairus' countenance falling. You know what? Jesus made a choice there. In the busyness of that schedule, all of those people crowding around with all of their needs, he made a choice to purposely focus on the needs of this one man and lift it above the needs of the crowd. Jesus, on his, he immediately follows him, but gets word that she has already died. Can I just say, this is a different scenario 
then when Jesus in John 11 is told that Lazarus is sick and Jesus purposefully waits four days. It is four days before he eventually gets to Lazarus and he is already dead. But you see, God worked all of this out so that God would receive the maximum glory. So this situation, though there's similarities, there's also differences, but the one thing that they have in common is that Jesus' compassion compels him to act. He weighs needs and he says, you know what? I'm sure there's a hundred needs here, but I'm going to minister to this one need. Now in the process, I told you, as he's going, another woman touches the hem of his garment and, and she's healed. And Jesus takes some time as he's now following, knowing that the Father has revealed this. And remember, Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. So somehow the Father has communicated to him what he is to do in following Jairus. Now, I don't know, I don't know exactly how all of that worked. Jesus only said what the Father revealed to him to say, and he only did what the Father showed him, what he saw the Father doing. And so in this process, he knows Jairus' daughter apparently is going to die. But he takes time to minister again to this lady with the issue of blood 12 years. When he arrives at Jairus' house, we pick up the story in verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion. The people were crying and wailing loudly. Now, in Jewish culture, you always had the mourners. The mourners were gathered uh, in the home. The mourners would then gather at the gravesite. When Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead, the mourners were at the tomb. Sometimes mourners were relatives. Sometimes mourners were actually paid to come and express this grief and this traumatic emotion of this person passing. I don't know if these people were paid, if they were relatives, but they are mourning. There truly is grief. If you can just step into Jairus' shoes or sandals and, and feel the pain there, how intense that would have been. So Jesus encounters this crowd. They're gathered around out, uh, inside the home. He's gone inside the home, and there's gathered in the main room there these people. They're mourning, weeping loudly. The, he even calls it a commotion. It's loud. And this is what he went in, and he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. So the, he dismisses the group from the house, and then he actually goes into the room where the child had, was sick and had now died. Jesus says he's, she's only sleeping, many times a metaphor for death. But he has gone into, as he would say, wake her up. He's going to raise her from the dead. He goes into the room where she is at, took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked about 
She was only 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I'm not sure how well they were able to accomplish this. In other Gospels, it does say that they did tell people, regardless of Jesus telling them not to. My goodness, you step outside of your home, and the mourners are there saying, well, what did this Jesus fellow do? Well, he kind of mm, raised her from the dead. I mean, how do you keep that quiet, right? But Jesus wanted to be careful that his fame did not spread too far because it would make it almost impossible for him to minister in the town. And he encountered that on occasion, and so he had to leave some towns because there was just, his, his fame had grown too strong. I want us to see, number one, that Jesus, here we see, Jesus took time even in a busy schedule. That Jesus did not just go with the, the, the you know, well, there's, I'm going to minister to five people versus one people. Some, you know, of course I'm going to choose the five. Sometimes he weighed the need and in his spirit knew, I am supposed to minister to this one person. So as we are seeking to be salt and light, we need to allow this, the compassion of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to compel us. And sometimes that means I'm going to not focus on all of this stuff. I'm going to take some time out and I'm going to minister to this one need. A related situation, this is now our second picture, very similar. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 2. Jesus, the second thing is Jesus accepted interruptions and inconveniences. I mean, how many times has someone else's need inconvenienced you? Maybe it inconvenienced your time. Maybe it inconvenienced you know, what you were focused on at the moment. And, you know, I'm a very focused type of person. It's hard for me when I'm focused to turn my attention to something else. My wife can attest to this. But sometimes it's important. And so we can get, we can get focused. Sometimes we, we, our, our schedule is extremely busy. These things are inconveniences. So Jesus accepted interruptions. You know, and, and I know, especially when I was going through seminary, I was working a full-time job. I was going to school full-time, trying to be a husband and, and a dad. I made a choice to study as much as I could at home so that if stuff came up, I could tend to it, or at least here and there take little breaks and spend time with my family. Um, four, very intense four years for me. At least for me, it was hard. Um, but there were many times in which I just had to stop with my studies at my dining room table and just take a little break, help my wife out, or be able to help with the kids. Um, but those were some hard, hard years. And we can find ourselves in a similar situation. We're focused on something and a need, a child's need, a neighbor's need, a church member's need, screams and says, I need help. Here's what happened with Jesus. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, that would be where he, he basically lived, Grew up in Nazareth, but he lives now in Capernaum. The people heard that he had come home. So they gathered, so, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now understand that there are Pharisees here as well. Here's an amazing opportunity. Jesus isn't just teaching the, the common Jew. Now there are Pharisees 
there are religious leaders who want to hear what Jesus has to say. Now, if you follow the chosen, they show Nicodemus showing up on the scene while Jesus is ministering in Capernaum, and he happens to be at this event. He was at several others. Uh, I, I like the artistic license that, um, what's his name, Jenkins? Dallas Jenkins, thank you, uh, took. Uh, I, I don't believe what he shared was unbiblical. Uh, there were some nuances. I'm wondering why he did certain things, but I, I appreciated the way he brought Nicodemus in. And, and I'm not saying Nicodemus is here, but what I am saying is that in The Chosen, Jesus impacted him by his teaching. And we do know that Nicodemus was impacted by Jesus' teaching. We just don't know exactly how. John 3 is Nicodemus' story. So here we are in Mark 2. There's Pharisees gathered around, and Jesus has this amazing opportunity to impact these leaders. These are now the people. If they get this truth, like I believe Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea got the truths of Jesus, teaching on the kingdom and who he was as the coming Christ, if they would just get these truths, they could amplify Jesus' impact. But what happens? As all these people are gathered, it's so crowded that these friends bringing this paralytic, paralytic couldn't even get in. It says, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four of them. So one at each corner, I suppose, carrying their friend, the paralytic. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That actually sets Jesus up for criticism, not for people to step back and say, wow, what an amazing teacher, and especially the Pharisees. But Jesus goes on in verse 10, and he says this. Uh, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. In other words, heal him, which is easier. But that you may know, this is, this is why Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, rather than initially saying, take up your mat, you're healed. Here's why. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he, he says to the paralytic, I, now he tells him, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Right in front of them all. In Capernaum, I'm, I'm sure the paralytic was rather well known to many of them, maybe even all of them. It's not like Capernaum's this huge city or anything. And Jesus, right in the middle of his teaching, he stops it. He doesn't turn to him as he walks. Hey, 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 guys, hang on now. Hang on. I'm busy here. Can't you see? I'm ministering to the people. But he allows the four friends to lower the par their paralytic friend because now Jesus says, here is an opportunity. This is a kairos moment in which a more expansive and even explosive, dare I even say dividing, opportunity to minister is not presenting itself. 
And so Jesus stops what he's preaching or teaching, and he tells the man, because he sees faith, he, he somehow peers into the man's heart and recognizes forgiveness, because no sins are forgiven apart from, for, from repentance, church. So he's able to see repentance, and he begins by saying, your sins are forgiven. This man's faith is turning to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And can I just say, Jesus stops this teaching because now whatever he was teaching on, maybe he was even teaching on repentance. We don't know. Maybe he was teaching on faith. I don't know. But here is now an example of what he has been teaching, if not then, before. Repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He regularly preached on this. And now here is the man. Your sins are forgiven. What an amazing example. Jesus sees his faith because he says, son, right there, he brings attention to his faith there in verse 5. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he saw their faith. And I can only imagine he looks into the heart of this paralytic and sees faith as well, repentance at least. So Jesus, in the midst of this interruption, takes a moment. And he ministers to him and heals the man. He heals him. Again, he places the need of the individual above the crowd. When Meredith and I had moved to Phoenix, Arizona, we were there, like we moved there within a few months after getting married. She did have an obligation to the government because she had gotten a scholarship that now obligated her to serve as a nurse since that's what her degree was in, in a hospital run by the government. So it was called the Phoenix Indian Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. There, it was specifically, of course, just by the name, it was specifically for the Native American Indians. Numbers of people, um, hundreds and hundreds of miles around, would get flown into this hospital. Meredith had an opportunity one time to fly out to one particular place and be the nurse aboard the helicopter that would fly the, the person back in. A person had fallen into the, a fire during a fight and had been badly burned and brought them to the Phoenix Indian Medical Center. I believe it was that very same person that my wife asked me if I could come in and talk with him. This, and so I did that with this young man and he actually gave his heart to Christ. There was another occasion in which a young lady who was a paralytic, a paraplegic, um, my wife had been ministering to her as a nurse, and so she just said, hey, why don't you come home and spend Thanksgiving with us? So my initial response was, we've never taken care of a paraplegic before. We, we, this is going to be hard. Um, wow, how are we going to do this? So she not only invited, and what was her name? Do you remember, sweetheart? Peggy, there we go. So Peggy not only comes to our house for Thanksgiving and, en and enjoys Thanksgiving with us, but then my wife proceeds to invite her to go to Old Tucson with us. Now, Old Tucson, and I imagine some movies have been shot there, but this is not Tucson, this is Old Tucson. So Old Tucson is like a, uh, a cowboy town. So it's a facade, it's not real, they do a lot of shows there. But it's like what the Old West looked like back in the 1800s, okay? 
So dirt roads, all of that, and we're pushing a wheelchair all the way around this town, everywhere, into the uh, various stores and saloons, and and we're watching gunfights in the street, and, and she had an absolutely, totally cool time. What a blast. Was it an inconvenience? Absolutely. But you know what? It was an opportunity for my wife especially, but myself as well, since I was the one pushing the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, wheelchair, right? But it was an opportunity for us to just minister to her. Now, Jesus was even more inconvenienced because this need came right in the midst of something that he was already doing. And I just want to encourage you, as you are thinking about how you can walk through these types of these principles, let's look at the life of Jesus. Let's see how he did things, okay? And here, Jesus placed such a high need and priority upon this one. Number three, Jesus went to great lengths to meet individual needs. I want you to turn back with me to Matt, to Mark chapter 5. This is interesting. Um, in the very beginning of Mark chapter 5, well, let me just, at, at, the, at the end of chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, let's get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, the Father had shown him a ministry opportunity or ministry opportunities, and that was the next stop. So they get into the boat, and they they go there. They arrive there, apparently, the next day. There is a storm, however, while they're in the boat, and by the time they arrive, now, when they say there was a storm, they thought, the disciples thought they were going to lose their lives. And these are fishermen. They've been out on the sea, I don't know how many times, Right, and, and, and they've been through storms similar like this, and they recognize this is a storm that could kill us. So these aren't like shepherds who are like land-bound guys. No, these are guys who are used to a boat out on the sea in a storm, and they're saying, this could kill us. I, I would take that pretty seriously, okay? They probably know what they're talking about. Jesus wakes up, and he says, like, huh? What, what do you need me for? Type of thing. And he calms the sea, and he calms the wind, they eventually, so it's a harrowing, life-threatening situation. You're kind of, th- as you're reading through this story, I wonder why Jesus is crossing the sea here. Man, this must be super important. He's risking his lives and the lives of all 12 of his disciples. This has got to be a really big deal. So what happens when he arrives? Chapter 5, verse 1, here's what happens. It says when they, cr- they cross the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, so it's the other side, it's, it's at least seven miles, they've been they, they, they leave in the evening. I'm going to imagine they are, arrive sometime during the morning. When they crossed the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man, from, a man with an evil spirit, now it's in the singular here, we find out that it's actually many, his name is, the, the demon's name is actually Legion, but a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. He did not meet him with an extended handshake or an embrace, This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even a chain. For he had often been chained by chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart 
and broke the irons on his feet. This dude was strong and empowered by this demon or these demons, and now he's running at Jesus. They just arrive on shore. They see a man charging at him. I'm sure his hair looks like it hasn't been combed in months, if not years. He, he has cut marks on him, uh, probably permanent scars from the chains that he broke, and he is running at Jesus. I'm sure his clothes are torn, and you can only imagine what his disciples are doing, saying, Jesus, why did we come here now? What bad timing. Let's get back in the boat. And Jesus stands there, and the man comes, and he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, you may remember the story. Jesus commands the demons to come out. They go into a herd of pigs. There's a lot of demons here. A legion, by the way, is like 6,000. They go into the pigs, and the pigs rush down the hillside into the sea, and they all die. Then it says at the end of the story, if you were to turn the pages I need to, it says right here in verse 16, those who had been told, uh, those who had seen it, told the people what had happened. That is, the people in the town, what had happened to the demon, demonized man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged to go with him. I'm not going to get into how this story ends. I want to highlight Jesus risked his life and the lives of his 12 disciples just to cross the sea to meet the needs of one man. One man. Ministry time over, Jesus gets kicked out of the town and they cross the lake again. That's when the story of Jairus picks up. There are times, church, in which God is going to call you to do something and it's going to take a lot of your time. It's going to take maybe even some of your financial resources. It's going to be super inconvenient. But Jesus placed individual needs as a high priority. He crossed the Sea of Galilee, risking his life in a storm to help just one man. Jesus also tended to see needs, and he took initiative to meet them. In, in Mark 8, we see another snapshot of Jesus. In verse 1, he says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. Underline that word. I have compassion for these people. We realize a little bit later there's 4,000 of them. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days, but they have nothing to eat. So Jesus, we, we read in Matthew, Jesus has been healing them, and he's been teaching them. I'm not sure how this worked with their uh, businesses. I, I don't know how this fit in. But for three days, they've been with Jesus. They're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, a few miles from the closest town, several miles, in fact. And Jesus is ministering to them, and he realizes they've been with me three days now. There is a need here. And Jesus perceived the need. They, they obviously had brought some food, how much we don't know, but now they're out of food. Time to stop what I'm doing. Time to stop healing people and teaching and now to provide. And Jesus feeds 4,000 from just a few fish 
and a funeral. And he ministers. Now, not just to individual needs, but now this is a group of 4,000. I think sometimes we tend to think, well, the more people I can minister to, that's the direction that I need to go. You know, pastors, and I'm not shaming them for this, but they will generally gravitate to the larger churches. Why? Because there's more impact. Well, that may not be the case at all. I'm just simply saying Jesus is just not always driven by the numbers, but he is driven by the compassion in his heart, even if he's inconvenienced, even if it's bad timing, even if he's in the midst of something really important. And I'm not going to get into this just because of time, but Jesus was just had sent his disciples out they, to, to minister in many towns. They came back. This was their first mission trip. Awesome. He comes back. They're now decompressing. They're sharing their reports of, wow, we did this, and this person was healed. We anointed them with oil, as you told us, and they were miraculously healed. Even demons came out. Jesus, this was so amazing. And he's listening to these, and he's probably doing some debriefing and, and, and teaching as they're sharing. But there were so many people gathered around that his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus, you know, we, we got to get away from this. And He's prioritizing. Here's the needs of the, the, I need to place my disciples as a priority now. So he then crosses the lake. Many times Jesus crossed the lake just to get away from the crowds to get with his disciples. He does that, but it says that the crowds followed him and they met him on the other side. So Jesus is, is out there. He's heading to shore and there's already a crowd gathering. And so he finally, it says that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And his heart broke for them. Now, Jesus apparently had some time with his disciples while they're going to the other side of the lake. Okay. And now it's like, okay, guys, maybe I wanted to spend more time doing this, but here is a need now. And that's when he feeds the 5,000. And Jesus is weighing needs. Sometimes... He, he meets the need of an individual. Sometimes it's the crowd, but he is always driven by compassion. He's always driven by this desire to see people's needs met, and he would look for those needs, and he would initiate ministry to those people. I'm just going to very quickly, because my time is, is gone now, I want to just get, I'm going to read six things. The question that we're asking right now is, okay, Mike, in view of Jesus' examples, and church, I'm just going to, well, I'll mention that later. In view of the, these examples, then, how can God pour more of his love into my heart? I think all of us could stand to have more of the love of Jesus in our life, more of his compassion, so that we can see with Jesus' eyes the world. Because sometimes we're gravitated to things. Maybe that's really not the heart of God. It looks like it should be, but it's not his heart. And the heart of God right here is this one little person, one small, this person over here with this need. And how do we discern the heart of Jesus in these situations? So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to list six, six, five things, five things. And I'm just going to encourage you, write these down. But I'm going to challenge you, do at least two of these this coming week. Do at least two of them. Two of them. Here we go. How can we seek to increase our love or compassion for others? And truly, you know, how can I do it? Really, it's availing yourself to God doing it through you. I hope you understand that. Number one, deepen your love for God. Start there. Deepen your 
heart's compassion, your, your love for Jesus himself. Remember the Ephesians, and they were rebuked in Revelation 2 because they had forsaken their first love. And their first love was Jesus, but it was that first love that they had in their Christian walk, renewed, sins forgiven, and they just had this heart for God and for people. And Jesus told them, you've left that all behind. So, number one, deepen your love for God. Get in, number one, get into his word. Just get into his word. Don't get into it so you can grow in knowledge. That's never to be your goal. Information is not your goal when you get into the word. Transformation is. Now, you need information, but the information is not the goal. The transformation is. Let Jesus transform your heart. Get, dig into the word to receive its life because the word points to the word that became flesh. Okay, always. So that's how we treat it. Jesus, as you're reading the word, point me to Jesus. Through the word, through prayer, through worship. These are types of things we'll cultivate this love for God in your heart. Number two, simply pray that God will deposit a greater amount of his love in your heart, however he choose to do that. And I'm just going to tell you, when you pray that bold prayer, when you say, Jesus, fill me more with your love that I see in the Gospels, he's going to put you in situations that's going to stretch you. You're going to make some of these difficult decisions that Jesus had to make, and he's going to train you. He's going to start filling your heart more and more with love for people. So pray that he will do that. Number three, pray for others. I want to tell you what, whenever people ask me, you know what, I'm growing in my faith, but I tend to get frustrated with people so easily. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Start praying for people. Okay. I mean, it's okay for you to have a list of names, but don't pray through that list. Like Jesus bless aunt Maggie and bless uncle Ralph and bless my mommy, and bless my daddy, and bless my brothers and my sisters, and bless me most of all, and bless, and bless, you know what? No, step into their shoes, and what are, what are they going through in life? Do that. Step into their shoes. What, what difficulties, what struggles are they facing? And as you're stepping into their shoes and seeing life through their eyes, pray for those needs that they are perceiving in their life. That's how you want to pray for them. Don't pray that generic prayer, oh, bless and bless and bless. Like, okay, God, I, I, bless, I, I pray for all 150 of the people on my list. Woohoo, man, I, I really took some ground in my prayer life today. I want to be careful in, 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 in how I talk right now, but I'm just going to encourage you. I, I think Jesus is calling us to pray much deeper prayers than that. And really... Because what happens is when you're praying for people, you start loving them more. You start realizing the needs that they have and the hurts that they have. And anyway, pray for others and allow God to break your heart for what his heart breaks for in their lives. Do you understand? So many times the people Jesus met were desperate. I'm not going to do this, but if I were to say, how many of you right now, there is a desperate situation in your life, most of you would raise your hand. That's how we, that's what we want to pray for you. Amen. Number four, practice compassion and practice these above examples. You know what? You might even want to just start reading through one of the Gospels with the eye specifically on how Jesus loved people. How hard it was, perhaps, in certain situations to love, but he did it anyway. 
and just focus on that. How did Jesus love? You're not going to find any greater example on how to love people than Jesus. And then I'm just going to conclude with this. Watch some of the people around you. See how they love people. See how the extent that they go to in certain situations. That's like Jesus with flesh and bone, so to speak. It's, it's real life examples. You're seeing it in people. I watch my wife. I watch Julian. I watch others around me. I watch many of you and how you love one another. And it, it, it just amazes me in how you guys love one another. That inspires me. I know I'm not perfect in how I love people. I know that. And I need you people to help set the pace sometimes for me, for you to kind of just do what Jesus would do and just call me and challenge me by your example to live the way Jesus did. As you do that, as you look at other people's life, just say, man, that is so beautiful. That's what I want to do. I want to love like that. You know, I, just the other day, um, we had our grandkids over. They had had COVID, so they couldn't unwrap presents uh, during Christmas. So we set up a time this past Thursday, and we all got together. And my daughter, Shine, just has this unique ability to connect with kids. And she sat down, and we're opening gifts. And two of the, the, the three kids just gravitated towards it, like the entire evening. And she just loved on them. And, and, and I have to say, you know what? What an admirable quality. Because as I look at Jesus' life, he did that too. He did that too. And when the children would come to him and his disciples said, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus ministers to adults, I guess. And Jesus said, what? The kingdom of God belongs to children like this. No. Let them come to me. And Jesus would lay hands on them and bless them. Jesus took time for children. And I just appreciate that about Shine. And I appreciate that about Hosanna and Torah and many of you. And, and just the, that you take time and you focus on the children that I think sometimes we don't so quickly focus on. Let's see Jesus' love in one another. And let's emulate that, okay? Our, our time is up. Can you stand with me? And, and we're going to have communion right now. Um, so if we could have the, someone could go and get the teachers and bring them in. I want to close in prayer. I want us to just say, God, this is where it all starts. If I don't have love, I gain nothing. I am nothing. Love is what we are called to. At the end of the day, and I'm all for defending the faith and defending the truth, but love has got to be the end goal in all of this and defending the truth. And, and I say that because I grew up in the denomination they were so focused on defending the faith, defending the truth, that many times they left love at the door. We can't do that. Love and truth, hand in hand, this is how we're going to live. Father, I just ask you that you would help us. Uh, I know at times, Lord, I struggle in loving the way that I know you want us to love so that I can impact more and more people. Sometimes, Father, I'm so focused, I don't see the needs of others. And I just ask you, Father, help all of us, just like Jesus, see these needs and initiate reaching out, ministering, loving, helping them, teaching them truth, yes, loving on them. So, Father, would you equip us during this time of being in your word and how we can be salt and light. And would you help us, Father, to impact this generation as Jesus did in his generation. Would you do that, Father? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.